Welcome to the Vegetable Beat. My name is Ben Phillips, and I work with Michigan State University Extension. And my name is Natalie Hoytel. I work with the University of Minnesota Extension. We've been doing this podcast over the last few years, and we're changing the format a little bit for this season. We're going to do some pre-recorded interviews in a three-act style, where Natalie and I will introduce an episode by talking about why we decided to do it. It might not be us doing it, but we will introduce it. Then we'll have the second part, which is the actual interview, performed by us or other people. And then the third part will be a wrap-up. What did we learn? Where can we go from there? How are we doing this, Natalie? So this podcast is brought to you by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. It was kickstarted by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. And our license for Transistor is held by the University of Minnesota Extension. And you can listen to this episode and all the rest at glveg.net slash listen. Enjoy the show. So this is kind of a unique episode in that it was actually recorded in 2020 uh, for a different project. And then when COVID happened, that project sort of fell off the radar as other things took priority. So this episode is about biofumigation and specifically in the context of using biofumigation as a tool for managing Phytophthora and some other soil-borne diseases. And so back in 2020, we were starting to see Phytophthora for the first time in Minnesota. And so I reached out to two colleagues who have some experience with biofumigation, Jim Jasinski at Ohio State and Meg McGrath at Cornell. And I wanted to learn how biofumigation works and when growers should think about using it, but also just some of the practical aspects of like, what do you need to do to be successful in this practice? Uh, What are just some tips and tricks that they've learned from doing it? So hopefully we get both of those perspectives, the kind of research-based perspective and the more hands-on perspective in these interviews. So since they were recorded in 2020, I checked back in with them in 2022 and just asked, like, is this content still relevant? Has anything changed? And for the most part, they said, yep, everything is still the same. But they added a couple of tidbits of insight that they have learned in the last couple of years through their trials. So we'll insert a little conversation that we had at the end, um, just kind of learning that updated information. So with that, I hope you enjoy. Here's Jim. So I started as the IPM coordinator back in 2013, and my major role there is just to sort of be a project manager. We've got four or five major areas within the IPM program that we fund field crops, specialty crops, bed bugs, pollinator health, you know, clinic stuff. Um, But I've been working in pumpkins since about 1999, and that's really a lot of fun. There's a lot of things going on in pumpkins, a lot of work we've done in the previous years. We've done cover crops and variety trials and disease trials, insect trials. Um, And most recently, we started getting into and reading about biofumigation, uh, which is, you know, interesting to think about, you know, trying to rid the soil of all kinds of pests, insects, or diseases uh, using more natural means and not chemicals like methyl bromide, which are outlawed now, or metam sodium, which are not really great to be around. Um, so yeah, we're just kind of new into this, have done it for one year, and uh, have some results and are going to do some more this year, actually. 
Yeah, so I'm I'm Margaret McGrath. I go by uh, Meg. I'm located on, I work for Cornell University. I'm located on Long Island at the Long Island Horticultural Research and Extension Center, um, part of Cornell University. We've had presence um, on Long Island doing research and extension activities for a great many years because it is one of the more important counties um, for agriculture in New York. Surprises a lot of people. They think of a Long Island as being a place that tourists want to be, and they certainly do but we've got a lot of agriculture. So I've been here since July of 1989. Um, I do a lot of applied research on disease issues in vegetables for growers and a lot of extension. And I got into working on Phytophthora um, when it started to become a big issue on Long Island. And when was that, Marlins? Oh, that was in the 90s, 1990s. Okay, so you've been dealing with Phytophthora a long time. I have, and also trying to manage it in um, my own research plots. Um, I do a lot more research on powdery mildew in um, cucurbits, particularly pumpkins. Pumpkins is a big crop on Long Island, and that's the crop that's been hit the most by Phytophthora here. Uh, we get a lot of people who want to come out and pick pumpkins in the fall, so we need to have our pumpkins stay good through into early October, mid-October. Mm -hmm. So. Let's back up a little bit and just define biofumigation. So do you want to just explain the concept of biofumigation, if you know anything about the history of biofumigation? Yeah, so um, again, I, I'm just kind of starting out with this, but I've read quite a bit about it. And um, so fumigation is obviously, we're thinking about gases that diffuse out through various areas and they have kind of a, a sterilizing effect, right? Um, biofumigation is, is kind of the same concept, except it's not always a gas that we're after. Sometimes it's an exudate or something that happens in the soil, an interaction. So it's not necessarily a gas, but it's using the various plant parts that are ground up. And then there's a chemical reaction that happens in the soil. And that reaction is basically kind of a sterilant reaction, um, like it would be for a traditional fumigant. So in this case, we're talking about um, brassicas, basically brassica cover crops, usually a mustard, um, and they form a compound called glucosinolate. Yeah, well, so the way it really happens is you're right. We're talking about the mustards in general, right? The brassicas, and uh, but in the brassica family, there's there's also other plants, even like yes. arugulas, that you know give that that have this sort of property uh, for biofumigation. And the way I understand it is, uh, you know, I've, I have two and a half years of chemistry, but I try to forget all that years ago. But what I have relearned, so the plant itself um, manufactures the compound glucosinolate. And then, uh, you know, it sort of peaks during flowering. And then what we want to do is, is take that product and then incorporate it into the soil there's a reaction that happens in the soil, you add a little bit of water and an enzyme called myrosinase, and that breaks the glucosinolate down into what's called isothiocyanate. And that's really the product that does, you know, that sterilizing activity in the soil. And so when you do the biofumigation with mustards, that particular kind of isothiocyanate is the allele version. And then that product is very similar to metamsodium, which has a methyl. Okay, uh, isothiocyanate. So that's how the chemistry works. That's how the biofumigant final product, this allele isothiocyanate, 
is very similar to the traditional fumigant metamsodium, which is a methyl isothiocyanate. So chemically, they're very closely related. That's the bottom line. And uh, that's what we think does, uh, you know, some of the heavy lifting in this, in this process. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons that I wanted uh, to talk to you about this, um, I guess I, I read about it online, I've even seen videos of it, and I think it just, it's a little bit intimidating, the process of it. It, it seems really complicated. It's like this this idea that's out there, but before we make recommendations about it, I was just really curious to talk to someone who had done it about like how difficult the process was, things that you learned, maybe how you would do it differently. Um, so could, I guess, could you just kind of walk through the process of like, when do you plant the cover crop? How are you terminating it? What is that window of tilling it into the soil look like? And maybe what have you learned along the way as you've done that process? Right. Uh, so I think it's a bunch of easy steps all stacked together, which makes it seem hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there, it's it's just like planting and managing a cover crop in front of your cash crop. That's really what it's like. Um, so in Ohio, the way that I think of it is, is we want to try to plant that early in the spring but not so early that it gets frozen or frosted off. So we have that balance, kind of that window for us is kind of between like April 1st, maybe April 30th. Um, That's the the window when it looks like we can plant it, we go ahead and plant it. Then Mother Nature does its thing, it grows, you know. um, The one thing about, I'll kind of just back up a second and say, you know, most cover crops, you know, farmers just throw the seed out, it sprouts, and then they do with it what they want. With this particular cover crop, you really want to maximize the biomass. So it's really important that you invest in fertilizer, you know, the nitrogen and ammonium sulfate to let this stuff grow up as big as it can grow because the more biomass you have, the more of that compound, the glucosinolate is produced, the more of that biofumigant effect you're going to see in the soil. So it does matter if you fertilize it or not. So, you know, um, that's just a kind of a, a point up front. So anyhow, depending upon the biofumigant mustard you choose, there's Pacific Gold, there's Caliente 199, there's Caliente Rojo, there's a whole bunch of them that are bred for biofumigation. And if, if you are going to do it for biofumigation, you're going to want to make sure you are growing a variety that was designed for biofumigation because not all mustards are equal. Yeah, are there seeds available on in kind of standard outlets like? Oh yeah, kind yeah. Johnny. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. You just, I mean, uh, of the four or five or six major, you know, seed distributors. Yeah. You know, I'm not gonna name any unless you get money <laughs> for this, but I could. No. <laughs> um, you can find it. It's in like usually like the cover crop section of the guide, and, and it'll talk about these are for you know, musters are for biofumigation. Okay. Um, the rates are anywhere from like five to 10 pounds an acre. The price is anywhere from like six to $10 a pound, just kind of depends, you know, um, but there's really no special magic. You can broadcast it. You can drill it. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it's about like a half inch deep. It's small seed like alfalfa. So you don't want to bury it so deep that it can't come up, but that's all kind of, you can read about uh, the, the planter requirements and I think it'd be very successful. It comes up, between like 50 and 60 days, it, it maxes out. So when we're at like maximum flowering, peak flowering, that's the time that those glucosinolate levels are highest in the plant. That's the time that you want to do your different actions 
uh, to get all of that compound into the soil where it's really going to do its work. So um, once you're at that stage, you're going to want to mow it. Okay, bush hog it or flail mow is actually preferred. Um, then you're going to want to take like a rototiller and you want to till that green biomass you just chop into the soil profile, like maybe three, four, five inches deep. You can get that all nice and mixed up. Come back with a packer and then kind of, you know, pack that soil down, you know, culti mulch or something like that. Uh, and then if you're able to spray water on top of it to help increase that seal and kind of in, then that's something that uh, you also you know, want to do. So there's really four operations that happen all within the span of like 15-20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like you have to have all three or four of those pieces of equipment lined up with three or four tractors lined up ready to go. Because if you delay between those steps, then that's time that all that potential gas is just getting into the atmosphere and you're losing that biofumigant effect. So it's it's really about the timing of that is, is really probably the most important piece of it. Yeah. So I would say like one of the barriers to that is the fact that many people don't have three tractors. Um, and I mean, if, if this worked really, really well and you had a really specific disease problem that this could address, maybe it would be worth investing in extra machinery. Um, but... How well does it actually work? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, to your first point, um, I realize that not everyone has three or four tractors laying around when we have the research station. So I would think that, you know, growers know each other. They've got yeah. neighbors, right? Yep. And if you really want to give it a go, I think you would just maybe ask, you know, your neighbor on the left, your neighbor on the right, and say, hey, can I borrow your tractor for a couple hours on this day to do this yeah. operation? And hopefully they'll say yes. And so you can probably borrow a tractor, yeah. you know, for a couple hours to do the operation. So, yeah, I, I understand that the equipment can be a barrier, but I think, you know, you can probably beg and borrow and get, get some equipment to give it a whirl to see if it works for you. Yeah, um, yeah that's a good point. And yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a short enough time period that hopefully... Right, right. You're just borrowing for an afternoon. Like, hey, I'll bring you over a six-pack if I can, <laughs> I can borrow the, the tractor for a couple hours. So I wouldn't let the tractor and the equipment necessarily be the barrier. Yeah. Um, but you definitely, you know, want to have that thought out before you buy the seed and then throw it in the ground. Because once the seed's in the ground, then the clock is kind of ticking, right? Mm-hmm. So typically when people terminate a cover crop, we tell them to wait a couple of weeks before they plant uh, just to let that organic matter break down so you're not getting competition for nitrogen. Is that pretty much the same with this type of biofumigant or do you need to wait a little bit longer since you're trying to get that fumigation effect? After you do the incorporation, you're supposed to wait like 10 or 14 days let that reaction the soil kind of calm before down you before you either uh, direct seed or you transplant. Okay. Um, because, you know, if the idea is that it's a fumigant and you plant in there, then it's going to have a detrimental yeah. effect on the plant. Um, I can kind of vouch for that in a way, especially the direct seeding part. The plants will grow, but they're a little stunted and they don't produce as much fruit as those that are transplanted. That waiting period of, you know, I think it's like 10 to 14 days. Was that when you direct seeded prior to, to waiting enough time? Or is that even after the 10 to 14 days, the direct seeded crops didn't do as well? So we had just worked the soil 
it was either that day or I think it was the next day we direct seeded right. and transplanted just to see what the effect would be. I mean, I'd read that, oh, you know, plants are, are going to die or whatever. But um, what I observed was the plants were fairly normal looking. Maybe the seeded ones were, they were a little behind because they were, you know, they're two weeks behind in development anyway for a transplant. Um, but the fruit was very different. These fruit came off the transplanted, you know, big pile of orange. These fruit came off the direct seeded, smaller green. Interesting. Yeah, and it wasn't just like two strips. I had done a strip where I had direct seeded here and direct seeded there, transplanted here and transplanted there. Okay. And then I've got two pictures that show these are the transplants here and over here. And you can see hmm. there's definitely something to it. So basically, just to recap, make sure you're fertilizing your cover crops. Be ready, have all your equipment in place. And then after you have terminated your, your cover crop, make sure you wait a good 10 to 14 days before seeding and transplanting, but especially direct seeding. Yeah, I would say that's all perfect. And in, in the way it works in Ohio is I would prefer to be transplanting at that time because now we're talking about probably the end of June right. and you're, you're going to yeah, pick up about two weeks if you're transplanting. If you're direct seeding, now you're another you know two weeks out from mm -hmm. that even. So um, that's why I would kind of lean more toward the transplanting because we're getting kind of late in the growing cycle. You know, we we haven't had a, a year recently where it's been warmer in the fall or it's been cooler in the fall, excuse me. But if it does and those plants haven't matured those fruit, the, the window might not be there. Yeah. You know, so that's the reason to go for transplant versus direct seed. So at the time that I talked to Jim about his work with biofumigation, he was pretty new to it, and so while he did a great job of explaining the process, he recommended that I follow up with Meg McGrath, who we were briefly introduced to at the beginning of the episode, to learn more about the work that she's been doing with biofumigation and how well it's working in her trials with Phytophthora in New York. So here's Meg. So you have been doing work with biofumigation. Was that work inspired by Phytophthora specifically? Um, or was that a little bit more broad? Um, it, I specifically started looking at it for managing Phytophthora. Okay. And was that just because other things weren't working? And so this was kind of a novel new thing to try? Or is there something specific about Phytophthora that makes it potentially more susceptible to biofumigation? Um, recognizing that Phytophthora as a soil-borne pathogen is more difficult to manage. Soil-borne pathogens, period, are more difficult to manage. Um, growers have a long growing season that they need to manage it for pumpkins and also winter squashes. Um, and yeah, recognizing that because it is such an explosive disease um, that it can really get going, that, that it's not going to take just a fungicide program um, to manage it. You really need an integrated program. So I also actually started looking at other kinds of management practices, um, alternatives to, to, you know, it, it, things to add to an integrated management program before biofumigation. Um, I've, I've looked at adding compost to the soil to try to uh, encourage good organisms to help um, compete or, or attack Phytophthora in the soil. I've looked at reduced tillage. Um, and then I heard some talks about people from people who are starting to look at biofumigation for other diseases and um, heard that, that Phytophthora and Pythium are particularly sensitive to biofumigation and decided it was something worth giving it a try. 
Okay. Um, so what was that process? Um, what kinds of trials have you done with biofumigation? Well, I started way back actually in 2008. I did an observational planting after the um, first after I'd started hearing about biofumigation and we just went out and did a, a strip with mustard and, and had a section next to it where we didn't grow mustard. And it was just a phenomenal dis difference came through and planted um, zucchini squash where the mustard was in the uh, section right next to it um, had some favorable weather and phytophthora was widespread in the strip of zucchini that was not where mustard was. Um, and we were seeing no symptoms initially in the strip where there was where there'd been mustard. It was a, a phenomenal difference. Also seeing fewer weeds, suggesting that the biofumigation had had an impact on um, weed seeds, which uh, other people had also noticed. Um, so then the next two years, we did a replicated trial looking at it with acorn squash. I did that work with our uh, cooperative extension agent who works here on, um, on, on vegetable crops. Uh, we did that trial together and, and, and saw, saw some good, good results. Um, continued doing work since then, and it is now my standard practice before the major field that I'm going to do uh, my powdery mildew research in here at the uh, uh, facility I'm located at on Long Island. Interesting. So yeah, actually one of the questions I was going to ask was, do you consider this a last resort or is it something that you would see as the regular part of a balanced management program? And it sounds like the latter is definitely the case for you. Absolutely. I think this is a disease you've got to have an integrated management program. You've got to be using whatever practices work within your farming situation. Um, you know, biofumigation might not fit in well or might not fit in every year. We also have done work in more recent years looking at alternating on a farm using biofumigation one year and reduced tillage another year. Are there particular conditions um, that might make biofumigation more effective um, on one farm versus another? Um, the, the quality of the, of the mustard planting, so getting it in um, with some fertilizer. Some people plant cover crops and, and don't treat them like a crop, but if you're going to get the maximum out of a cover crop, which is mustard biofumigation um, crop is, you want to treat it like a crop. You want to make sure it's uh, properly seeded. So yes, you can broadcast the seed, but you're going to have a, a much better stand if you drill the seed, making sure it's fumigated. If you get a dry spring, giving it water, um, you want to have a maximum amount of, of plant tissue there when it comes time to incorporate it. Um, so when Jim, who is also in this episode, presented some of his material um, with the Great Lakes Vegetable Working Group crew, um, there was this really robust discussion about um, how sealing is a part of the process. So you go through when you chop it and you immediately are supposed to seal it. And there was this discussion of maybe it's actually not like that process that's so important maybe it's not even the glucosinolate production that's so important, but there are these other kind of side benefits of just like adding a lot of organic matter. Um, I'm curious just to hear your perspective on like, how important is, is it to do every single part of the process correctly at that kind of critical point of chopping um, and working it in versus the kind of overall just benefit of having the mustard there at all? 
Well, there is actually can be a downside to adding a lot of um, just a lot of organic matter. And that's that um, a lot of organisms will really take off with um, just organic matter, beneficials, but also, for instance, pythium very much likes it. So if we were seeing no biofumigation and just adding a lot of organic matter, I think we'd start seeing a lot of issues with pythium root rot. Mm, okay. um, so that partly tells me that, that there's a lot happening with the biofumigation. Um, one, one grower who's been doing an awful lot of work with biofumigation, Dale Gies, who's out in um, Washington, um, he's been a really good source of information for me. He's been in contact with um, people in Italy who have been really working on developing these, these mustard varieties that are high in a particular glucosinolate that's so good. They've done a lot of work measuring the, the volatility that's coming out, how biocidal they are. Mm -hmm. um, he's also been in contact with a lot of other growers who have looked at using mustard biofumigation for different uh, pathogens, um, also, also uh, seeing results with nematodes, uh, wireworms, uh, weeds, which as I mentioned earlier, um, so there certainly has been some, I think there's strong evidence that it is the, the biocidal activity that's, that's happening that's, that's really doing it. Um, realize the mustard has a, a special type of glucosinolate that's particularly effective, a particularly volatile, particularly biocidal. Um, sealing the, the surface of the soil so that you don't lose the volatility. And that can simply be done. What we do is we run a, a cultipacker behind our rototiller, which is incorporating it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not a second step. It's, it's all done in that one step of, in, of um, incorporating the mustard that we've already chopped up um, and then sealing the surface. Okay. And I think I read in one of your publications that you don't necessarily like irrigate it in. You just do it on a morning where sometime during that day you're anticipating rain. Uh, yes, just because... We don't have a, a irrigation system that we can cover the whole field at one point in time. We don't have a big gun kind of a system. Um, so it means we're, we're going to have to move irrigation pipe across the field in order to get it all watered in. Having, some, having good moisture in the soil is important. That is also what's helping get it, get it, to get it started, the fumigation process. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's encouraging. Just, I think a lot of farmers are in a similar situation where they don't have irrigation systems across their whole fields. And so I was kind of wondering if there's this like perfect amount of time like that has to be done in 20 minutes or if you have a little more flexibility. Well, you want to get, you want to chop that mustard and get it promptly into the ground mm -hmm. because you're going to have some release of volatility of the, of, of that volatile, um, the, the, um, isothiocyanate is, you know, you're going to get that natural gas released and lost if you don't get it incorporated and, and sealed into the soil. Um, and that's the reason you hear it, that it should be done on a cool, that it's better done on a cooler day, which is often the kind of day where you're expecting rain to come in. It, it mm -hmm. tends to be a cooler day, of course, than a, than a hot, sunny day. Um, just because that breakdown process is... Yeah, it slows it down a little bit, so you're not going to lose the, the, um, the isothiocyanate. Um, keep most of it in the soil so it can do its thing. Mm -hmm. So one question I had about the isothiocyanate is it is 
a similar product to metamsodium, or it's a it's chemically similar to metamsodium, which is used for fumigation of potatoes. Um, and there are significant safety concerns with metamsodium. Are there things that growers should be thinking about, whether it's just like personal protective equipment kind of stuff when they're doing this, when they're chopping and um, doing this biofumigation process? Well, if they've eaten any oriental mustard, they've actually eaten the glucosinolate. Um, we've been eating oriental mustard for thousands of years without any issues. Um, the particular glucosinolate that's in the biofumigant mustard is synagrin. Um, during incorporation, if a lot of volatility is, is coming off, a, a, a person who's running a tractor, if they're not in a cabbed tractor, they might um, experience a runny nose. Um, might feel it clearing their sinuses a little bit, kind of like wasabi can do. Um, I've never noticed this when I've been around it, but um, that could happen. Okay. Realize you are you are talking a different chemical. Yes, it's a related chemical, but it is a different chemical. Yeah, that makes sense. So I know we have been talking about biofumigation very specifically, but I wonder if to wrap up you could talk a little bit more comprehensively about how biofumigation fits into your broader management plan and the other strategies that you are including in the management of Phytophthora um, in addition to biofumigation. We think of, of Phytophthora as, you know, people often talk about rotation as being a part and part of uh, managing Phytophthora blight. And I, that pat, the Phytophthora capsaceae, the pathogen, it survives in soil for such a long time um, that I don't look at rotation as being that part, important a part of the program. Mm. Um, I've sometimes seen it show up in fields that have been rotated. So too often in our research facility, I'm amazed to see it pop up in a field where we've rotated out of cucurbits, who so we're now back into cucurbits for an experiment, before I see it in my block where I study Phytophthora every year. Huh, okay. Yeah, so you get some of those odd things. <laughs> and, I, and I have a grower friend who grows, um, he's, he's got a, a U-Pick pumpkin field and his other ag business is a greenhouse. You know, you can't, all, you can't rotate those. Right. Um, so he has pumpkins every year for 20 plus years now in the same field. He uses mustard every year. Um, he, he does a lot of other things to try to, to manage soil moisture and, and he's got a, a good strong um, fungicide program. And, and he has not had serious problems with Phytophthora um, most years. If we get a really rainy bad year, he might lose um, more than he'd like to see, but um, he's been doing pretty well. Okay. And at the beginning, um, you mentioned you have some trials where you're rotating every other year with uh, biofumigation and then like a no-till. Yeah, gro growers have, growers have been doing that. I have not done that myself. Okay. Um, but we've definitely seen some good results with reduced tillage. Okay. So in terms of broader cultural practices for Phytophthora, would you say reduced tillage kind of ranks among the top of those recommendations? Uh, it, it's definitely up there. Um, along with, I, I think one of the challenges with reduced tillage is, is weed management. Yeah. Um, I've, I've seen good results. The, the other that I've seen with commercial fields is where they're using uh, reduced tillage in rotation. 
So um, using reduced tillage for corn, which is a little bit easier to grow mm -hmm. in a reduced tillage situation, and then coming in the next year with um, their pumpkin crop, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, water management is a big one. Uh, so what I routinely do now with my pumpkins is uh, grow them with drip t tape. So I'm using drip irrigation. So I'm only wetting the field around the root system of the plant instead of irrigating the whole field, um, which also helps with uh, weed management, mm -hmm. which is good. Um, I have improving soil drainage in any way. So um, subsoiling between the pumpkin rows before they um, uh, vine out is another good practice. I do that routinely as well. Um, not planting low areas. Yeah. Learn where your low areas are, and a good fungicide program. Um, the other thing I see growers do, for instance, that one grower I mentioned, is he's routinely inspecting his crop, and if he sees a plant going down, he take or fruit that are affected, he takes them out. Okay, okay. sounds great. Um, I think those are actually all of the questions that I had written up ahead of time. Is there anything? that I'm missing, anything really important that you want to say about biofumigation that I didn't ask about? Um, I, I think there's a lot of advantages to it. Um, I think beyond the, what it's doing for Phytophthora in the spring, you're, it's, you're gonna have a field full of flowers before there are very many other flowers and it will just be alive with bees and um, beneficials. So there's a big plus that you're doing with biofumigation. Um, you are adding a lot of organic matter to the soil. There's some advantages to that. Another grower here on Long Island who's, who got into biofumigation pretty early and is, has continued doing it co commented to me how he can just feel the soil works better when he prepares it before planting his pumpkins and winter squashes. Um, That's great. This has been really helpful. Oh, good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm obviously a big believer in it. I've got, I've got mustard growing out in my field, getting ready for my pumpkin experiments this summer. Mm -hmm. So that's the end of the interviews from 2020. In late spring of 2022, I checked back in with both Jim and Meg to see how biofumigation was continuing to go for them. Jim had somewhat mixed experiences. He ended up reaching a point of not recommending biofumigation to growers due to the extra expense and time. He was also having good success managing Plectosporium with fungicides. He did say that for growers who are interested in the pollinator benefits and soil health benefits of a mustard cover crop, it could still be worth it, but recommended trying it for a few years on a small scale to see how it works for you. Meg continues to use biofumigation and mentioned that farmers she works with on Long Island continue to use it too and feel like it's worth the time and effort. She wanted to share some cost estimates for her method which includes two people and two tractors. The first person has a flail mower terminating the crop, and the other person follows behind with a disc to incorporate the residues. She said they spend about $100 per acre for fertilizer, which is a little bit more than a typical cover crop because the goal is to get a lot of biomass. They also spend $50 to $60 per acre on seed, but she mentioned that for a much smaller grower, you might pay a little bit more um, just because you're not getting the bulk benefit. Meg terminates the mustard in the first or second week of June and plants pumpkins a minimum of seven days later. And she wanted to remind people to make sure to disc the soil before planting 
to release any remaining biofume again. And that also gives you the added benefit of another cultivation pass for weed management. That concludes this episode of The Vegetable Beat. If you'd like to check out all of our past episodes, head on over to glveg.net slash listen. Sweet. Okay. okay. Thanks, Natalie. Okay. I got to run. Yep. <laughs> okay. See ya. All right. Okay, bye. Bye.